Well, well, good morning. Oh, good Jermaine, Jermaine. This is the Curious Anarchy podcast, and we're here today with another episode of Brunch with Naomi Osaka. However, we're just having a little bit of a technical issue getting on. So you'll have to just bear with us, um, and Mark will entertain you in the meantime. Thank you. I'm just going to pop off and get that sorted. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, no problem. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening today, um, I hope you're having a lovely sunny day uh, somewhere in the world. Um, we're having all sorts of confusion today in the UK. Um, when is a crisis not a crisis, I think is what we're living through at the moment. They're telling us there's no crisis, and yet every high street is full of cars queuing to get more and more petrol. People are phoning the radio saying, I'm an essential worker and I can't fill my tank. Lorry drivers are saying they're only allowed to fill £20 worth of uh, petrol or diesel, and they need a hell of a lot more to go across the country. So um, we're in a very strange situation. And interestingly, the government were warned last year about this and chose, like everything else, to put it on the back burner. So we are living in a time where no one has a clue what's going on and people are taking action into their own hands and it's leading to the most incredibly organised chaos that you've ever seen in the sixth largest economy in the world. So I hope um, your day and your life is better than the one we're having here right now. Well, to be fair, it's not been too bad. Um, there's still traffic outside. <laughs> I don't drive, I, so it doesn't really affect me at the moment. I mean, I, I went to get a bus to, to just to pop down to the next sort of um, high street. Yeah. And it's taken me over an hour to go there and back, which would usually be about a 20-minute return journey. Oh, wow. It's not because of the buses. It's because of the people queuing up for the, for the, for the petrol. Yeah. And what they're it's doing like is... a state where everybody is so desperate to get yeah, to exactly, work. exactly. They're flooding the petrol stations for... You're absolutely kidding So me. What, what's happening now is that people are, uh, like, attacking petrol stations from all angles, which means inadvertently or deliberately, whichever way you want to look at it, it means they're blocking every road off. Because say you're coming from... I don't drive over, but I'm saying, say you come from different sort of air, like a different zone into the petrol station, you're blocking two to three lanes of, of traffic. And, the, and then if you get across, the cars behind you think, oh, I'm going to go with him because he's getting across three lanes here. You should see. And then people are overtaking on the outside to get past all the... It's just... There's going to be accidents. I mean, because if there hasn't already, there's going to be big accidents because people are just taking the law into their own hands. It looks like... Um, do you remember the dodgems at the fairgrounds? It looks like that when you go on the road. It's just I'm crazy. Say, as, as you just said, people are taking the, the law into their own hands. It sounds a bit like the Conservatives. So... Yes, but I doesn't, mean... It doesn't really <laughs> seem like there's any uh, any difference between... And if you compare that, the Labour Party have just said they want to make the, uh, the, the sort of lowest wage that you can work for in the UK £15 an hour. And, and the Conservatives want to get them on their high horse about it. Like, oh, God, that's going to kill the economy. It's like, well, hold on. Why would it kill the economy? It just means Why? some of the very rich would have to give up some of their money. That's, that's not going to kill the economy. That's a really good question. Because if, like, you imagine, right, some of these smaller businesses or uh, yeah, businesses yeah. that aren't conglomerates. You no, know, you're right. Yeah. How would they afford to keep staff or that maybe the number of staff that they have. Well, can I answer that question, Jermaine? Because I've, I've been thinking about that for a long time now. Yeah. And it's the same with a lot of different things that we've discussed over the past few weeks. You've got to have a scale. Look, you can't compare the very wealthy people, the, the multinational companies that run this country with small businesses. Small businesses mm -hmm. don't have to get involved. But if you run a, you know, a multinational type of company, you should be paying your workers 50, at, okay. least 15, at least 15 pounds right. an hour. At least. So there's, there's a there's a floor or a threshold for where that kicks in then. But I, but but shouldn't there be anyway? I mean, isn't that how a civilized society would work? I don't know, but it seems to me well, like obviously I'm 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 looking at I'm thinking of say my local butchers or the local card shop or um, the hardware. No, but, but you're right when you when you take it to that level. But you're not looking at the multinationals that run our society now. I mean, the butchers you're talking, talking about the multinationals say saying that. 
obviously they should but what i'm saying is if it's across the board how would that work i'm I mean, just look, asking how would that no, work I'm gonna, I'm, the way i answer that question is when I'd i was curious to know when i was your age there were butchers on every high street there aren't anymore because these companies these massive companies have taken i mean coffee shops i mean we used to go to the wimpy for a coffee shop now you've got co shops purely dedicated to making coffee I mean, it's a huge amounts of global money. Hmm. But I mean, I want to draw your attention to something that happened today where the government took over the Southeast trains, Southwest trains, because they haven't been paying tax. So they, haven't, <laughs> they haven't taken it over because they haven't taken it over because it, they're charging extortionate amounts of money that people can't afford to travel. They've taken it over because they didn't get their cut of the wedge. So I'm sorry, if the government can do that, why can it not give £15? Sorry, am I missing something here? And also, sorry, I mean, people keep talking about the economy as if it's sort of like a secular, linear thing that happens in different paths, you know, like going down the swimming lanes at the baths. It's not separate like that. It's all joined into one economy, which means if you give £15 to everybody an hour, they're going to spend more money in shops, aren't they? Which then increases the economy of shops. Which then increases the economy of building. I mean, it's. I mean, is this rocket science? Mm. It's common mm. sense. The more, if you, you gave you know everyone what, in the also, country, there's, there's, there's an aspect of it for me where I can imagine that if people, were, if we were paid, or people were paid a a decent living wage, fifteen yeah. pound, whether that be fifteen pound or whatever it might be, um, they probably spend chunks of that paying off debt as well. Well, first of all, paying off debt, but secondly, paying for things that they want. Like, so coming when it comes to Christmas, they can actually buy their kids' things, and therefore the economy get like they've been saying the last three Christmases have been dead for the shops. So, surely that would make sense that people can spend money. I mean, certain countries are giving a thousand pounds a year so that people can do that, but then that's just encouraging consumerism. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 right? Yeah, right. Sorry. Ooh, no, I right. get the idea. I totally, totally get the idea. It's Listen, just, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't have to be consumers. You can give it all to charity if you want. I don't yeah, have a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How people spend their money. <laughs> I'm just saying it, A and B and C aren't being added together in this equation. Mm, mm. So, we have just been joined by our wonderful guest, Nina Oak. <laughs> How are you, Nina? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for Welcome to me. the Curious Anarchy what? Podcast. Thank you so um, much for joining us. Oh, <laughs> it's a pleasure. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your patience, Nina. Um, we had a we had a little bit of a technical issue in the background there. Yeah. Um, but we sorted it. We're here. We're present. Um, how are you, Nina? I'm great, actually. Um, as I spoke to you a little while ago, I'm still recovering over a cold, so I might sound oh. a little <laughs> but I'm here nonetheless. So yeah, I'm I'd like all here. our listeners from around the world to wish Nina a, a, a rapid recovery. Thank you so much. Um. Okay, today is going to be quite an interesting um, show. Um, Nina is a campaigner, an activist, um, a coach, and um, I would really love Nina if you could just kind of envelope some of what you're about for the listeners, if you don't mind, oh, please. Yeah. yeah, most definitely. Thank you so much. So my name's Nina Alt. I'm an activist primarily speaking out against honour killings and human trafficking because they've affected my life personally. Um, I'm an advocate for mental health, especially in young men. I um, work with various organisations around the world. I'm, I, every Tuesday I work with an organisation that is trying to create affordable housing for women with children and have left relationships because I was homeless due to that six years ago. Um, I also work with DE Africa. It's all about educating children in Africa, bringing a classroom to them because they can't get to the classroom. Uh -huh. I'm a mother, an entrepreneur and an author as well and a coach, as you said. Wow. All in one person. All in one person. <laughs> wow, you cannot afford to have a cold. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, first of all, I mean, huge, huge um, respect to you for all the stuff you do. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'd like to just pry that open a little bit. First of all, how do you balance all of that? 
Well, I, before my old life, as I call it, I lived in an eight bedroom house. I ran five or six companies. I drove whichever car I wanted because I worked towards getting it. Um, it was all my money because I was the one that was working. I was the only person working in the house. Those things never really actually meant anything to me. They didn't mean anything to me then, and they don't mean anything to me now. What really matters is my service to others. And even during my times in my past life, my old life, I was always looking to improve somebody else's life. One of the things I did was I would start fashion brands. I started Hype Clothing, Jaded of London. I worked with those people to make their dreams a reality. I'm very much about empowering others. I'm very much about getting the best out of others because often we have gifts that are not really ever touched and we we adapt to society and accept that we're content, which I don't agree with. Um, I don't push myself, if I'm being honest. I'm extremely busy, which I know. I'm also very good at allocating time for self-care, family and whatever whatever I'm trying to create. So where did it all begin? Which part? <laughs> well, you. I mean, where did you grow up? Where did you school? Yeah, sure. So I'm... Tell us about Little Nina. Little yes, Nina. Little Nina. That's what little we want to know about. So Little Nina, um, born and raised in the United Kingdom. My parents are Indian, so my heritage is from North India. Um, very strict, traditional parents. They were immigrants in the 1960s looking for a better life. Unfortunately, as I always describe, they brought with them in their luggage a huge amount of cultural restraints and traditions that didn't necessarily work with humanity or on a humanitarian ground. Unfortunately, if that's all you know, that's all you know, and that's why I've always coped with the way they've treated me. Um, I wasn't wanted as a child. I was born a girl, and in my culture, the African culture and the Middle Eastern culture, girls are not really wanted. Back home in India, they will place a girl under a truck so that the truck driver can get into the truck on the other side, not knowing there's a baby underneath his wheel, and literally roll over, drive over the baby and kill it. It's quite a common sight in China to see babies decapitated on the sides of the roads. Those babies happen to be girls. So being born into that and that whole mindset, I mm. didn't really have much chance at normal childhood, but then what is normal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. That's true. Yeah. What um, was school like compared to that? I mean, in terms of, was it a respite or did it was it just as bad for you? I mean, how did school figure in all that? I didn't know any different to the way I was treated at home or school. For me, it was normal to be treated badly. I went okay, to, okay. I'm born in the era of skinheads and punks, so. So was I, I sorry, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was, um, my father moved into a predominantly white British area so that he could give us a chance at almost breaking away from the culture, although he very much held on to the culture. So it was a bit of a, um, didn't really mix. Metal against metal situation, nothing seemed to sort of yeah. go smoothly. So there were two people of colour, as I call them. I know that's not necessarily the words everybody wants to use, but I use those. In the school, that was myself and my brother. If one break, he wasn't being beaten up, I would oh, be wow. being beaten wow. So every day I was spat upon, my hair was pulled. I was a very intelligent child, so I spent a lot of time in the library, which was an escape, but the teachers didn't really care. Um, and that went on for most of my childhood. So rather than school being a support to what's going on at home, it was an added <clears throat> stress for you, really? No, I wouldn't say it was a stress because I didn't know that being treated badly was a oh, I see. Okay, normal sorry, yeah. thing. Yeah, for me, yeah. school, school was a pleasure because I was learning and I was this young child who wanted to absorb and I read books because books for me were huge and they still are. So I, I enjoyed that element. I wasn't allowed to watch television. My friend would sing me songs. That's how I learned about Ross Stewart, Michael Jackson, those wow, sorts of songs. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea of um, Top of the Pops. You know, she would always come on a Friday and tell me. I watched it, I watched it, and she would tell me the song. And it would take me time to learn the music. It would take me time to learn the, the words. But eventually I would get the chorus and we'd be 
singing it for about a week on the way to and from school. Oh. <laughs> Can I just ask, what, what were some of your favourite books as a child? Oh, I was very much into the fairy tales, you know, I was very much away with the clouds. Um, we had a dog, actually, we got a dog and I thought I needed to read a book and I think I was seven or eight and I took Spot home, Spot the dog. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool, cool. It, 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 it taught me nothing about how to look after my dog, but it was an interesting book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh. and you know, you said you, you, your friend would. Um, so, having friends at school, what did you know? How did that work out for you? Like, in yeah, terms so of... I, yeah, from primary, I had um, two friends. One of them didn't really say very much. She was the quiet one. Whereas. It was a bit, it was quite, the, the journey to and from school was were probably the best parts of my day. Wow, wow. Um, we would dance, we would skip, we would run. You know, I was quite free, that word, that luxurious word freedom that so many people don't know about. I had that during that time period. Um, yeah. So I had two main friends. When I went into the bigger school, as we called it, the middle school, I was um, in a larger environment and that's when more aggression started against yeah. me yeah. but i also mm. made friends with another girl that came in from she was also indian and also a greek girl and their cultures are very similar so i, yeah. I actually had a, a few more friends than i initially had and so growing up that sort of the the, the, the part of england you were growing up it was it wasn't sort of very um, dispersed with different communities then well, it was Leicester, so you would never think it. Oh, sorry, you? I didn't know. It's one of the most. I know was very diverse, but I think it was the area we lived quite at the top of um, Narborough Road. I don't know if you know it, but it was right I at don't the top. Really know. As soon as you come in from the motorway, nobody really wanted to live okay. there. Most most Asians tended to cluster. The Afro Caribbeans tend to cluster and stay yeah. within their own communities. And um, my father. For some reason, took me into took us into a very good area, um, a very nice area, and um, as I said, it was predominantly white. Now it's not, but at that time it was. Yeah, yeah. And did you did you like at home? Did you learn about your own culture other than, other than it being forced on you? Did you actually learn kind of about the <clears throat> India you'd left behind and things like that? Yeah, you see, um, we did we did live in. Birmingham for a short spell as well and okay. my, my father's family all from Handsworth Wood and okay. um, we lived I'm there. I'm actually from Handsworth. <coughs> Are you? Are you serious? Yeah. Well, yeah. well we, um, we spent a little while there and I was very young but my memories are very acute. My mother's father was there for a short spell and he would romanticise and tell me these stories about India and how green and free it was and how he didn't like Birmingham, how he wanted to go back. And he was the only person that was ever kind to me. You know, he would often sneak a sweetie into my hand and tell me not to say anything. But my parents were less aggressive when he was around. So when he did go, I pined for him to come back. Um, but my culture was imposed upon me. And I, when I did end up in Leicester and I was six, I would take the Bible home. I would, later on as I got older and older, I started to read the Quran. I read my own religious book, which is um, a different one, and the Gita, which is the Hindu one. So I was taking all of these religious books and I was searching mm. for something and I was yeah. comparing and I actually realized at a very young age, I think I was 12, that they're all the same thing. They're just rules. <laughs> this game that we're living in, this life is actually a game. They're a rule book. If you follow that rule book, things that will happen that will be good to you. It didn't quite make sense at the time, but as life went on, it made a lot more sense. Mm. Let's, let's open that up slightly. In terms of your faith, what is your, your faith or religion? Or... Yeah, so I'm, I'm brought up a Sikh. Um, so Sikhism and my parents are from the Punjab, which is North India, as I said. Where? I don't practice any religion, but I respect every religion. I believe that there is one God. I've taken bits from every religion that I've read about and created my own mindset from it. I believe religion is a way of giving people faith and a focus of comfort. I also believe that religion is also another way of educating the rights and the wrongs and imprinting those morals upon us. 
that we don't necessarily have or we sway away and then we need that forgiveness to come back to it. So that moral compass is there. I do like to go to my um, Sikh temple, but I don't like to go when people are there because they're there for the wrong reason. Because if you want to worship God in any sense, you can worship him from your bed, your bathroom, your kitchen, anywhere. You don't need to be part of that community. Um, and often when I go there, it's about talking about somebody or another and it's gossip and I don't enjoy that kind of environment or frequency, so I tend to stay clear of it. Okay. Any comments, Mark? Well, um, I was just wondering, because uh, maybe our listeners don't know a lot about the Sikh religion. Um, of the major religions, like, for example, what's happening in Afghanistan, we're hearing a lot about the treatment of women. I just wonder how Sikhism is towards women, sort of, um, in terms sure. of... Yeah. yeah. You see, going back to Afghanistan quickly, what's happening there is cultural, not religious. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Regarding Sikhism, Sikhism is actually a very beautifully um, presented document, I'm going to call it, the Bible, a transcription of teachers that have come through time called the Gurus. There were 10 Gurus. And, and again, it's just a code of conduct to treat one another with respect. It doesn't tell you in there that a woman is beneath you or um, a second-class citizen. Just as in the Quran, it doesn't tell you to do certain things, which we're not going to get into too much, but it doesn't tell you to cover your head. Um, but then there's another book written by a man called Sharia Law, which then imposes those things. So oh, I see. Yeah. So it's like these, an interpretation. Yeah, so all of these religious texts um, are very beautiful, very integral. They hold value if you want to run by them, if you want to use them as your guide. But the culture is completely different to the religion. You could be a Sikh. It doesn't make a difference. But in culturally, you couldn't be a Sikh because you're not from that part of India. So it makes no sense. You know, I'm, I was taught as a child to hate Muslims. I was taught to hate blacks. Wow. And that's that's the cultural side. In my religious book, it doesn't tell you that. You know, we were almost told to hate other Sikh people that are not from the same caste. Now, in the actual religious book, it tells you there is no caste system, that we are equal. However, we derived from the Hinduisms and the Hindus, because originally in India, we were either Hindu or Muslim. Sikhism's a new religion. Yeah. So castes don't exist. My father was the highest caste, which is farmers because they own a lot of land. But when he came to this country, he wasn't farming. He was mm. running pubs. He owned pubs. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with farming. But when you <laughs> say this to somebody that believes in their culture, because they've been told that by their grandparents and their mother and their father and auntie and uncles, they get very defensive. My my mindset is that I broke out of that circle. I broke out, broke out of that mindset. I was with a Nigerian person for 23 years. I understand the whole of the African culture. I adapted to that. Part of his family were Muslim. I adapted to that. I like to know. I'm a very inquisitive person. I respect people for who they are, not the colour of their skin or the religion that they choose to lead. Wonderful. Wonderful. So uh, um, part of the, what lay behind my question was because I was—I'm always intrigued with religion. I grew up in the, in a way similar to you, obviously not because uh, I was a man. It was slightly different, but my, I had two sisters, and we grew up in the Jewish religion. And again, it's not that the religion itself says, you know, you, women are second-class citizens. It's just that the practices <coughs> and the and the roles tend to be, you know, the better roles, the decision-making roles tend to be more to do with the men. And the, and the and the position of where they sit in, in prayer and everything tends to be better than where they place the women. And so it's like, like you say, it's a cultural norm throughout centuries, but not from the beginning of the religion. It's, it's, it's like, you, I mean, I very much like what you said. It's like an interpretation that someone's taken upon themselves to write. And then that's beca that becomes the cultural norm. So it's quite interesting to, to hear you say that. Um, uh, how were you accepted in the Islamic culture in terms of uh, your Sikhist background? Or, or, I mean, how did that work out for you? <clears throat> well, it was my ex-partner's sister and mother who were practicing Islam. And 
I wasn't accepted because I wasn't Nigerian. I was an African. Oh, I see. Okay, That's because so, of that. So again, although you think there's racism within the Indian culture, saying that you shouldn't marry somebody out of your own, mm -hmm. it happens in across the board. It happens in Jewish society. It happens in Christian yeah, society. Absolutely. It happens in Northern Ireland and Ireland, Ireland Republic of Ireland are prime examples. So we can't necessarily say that I was accepted. I've never been accepted, which used to be an issue until I realized I didn't need to be accepted. I have yeah, yeah. complete full self-acceptance and love for myself, which I don't need from an exterior party. I'm 100% agree with you. I just I was thinking more in terms of uh, how we would like our societies to be rather than like, I don't think anyone needs to be anything. You know, you should judge by yourself. But I just think it's interesting that um, cultures still can't accept a kind of um, more, a more plural kind of way of life rather than being so secular and so uh, insular. And, and, and listen, I recognise it in all the... I mean, I've travelled an awful lot and I recognise what you're saying throughout the whole world. But, I, you know, I think we always look, for examples where that perhaps might be being changed or a better way of, of living seems to be... Uh, practice, but I, I totally recognise what you're saying. Um, I wish I didn't, to be honest with you. Yeah, most definitely, Mark. But what I will say is that a lot of people that are practicing cultural um, practices don't know why they're doing it themselves. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. granted. I mean, and then I went to a lot of cultures. I mean, you, when you talked before about uh, the the classroom for, for Africa, I, I've worked in Africa for two years in Zimbabwe, okay. and um, I mean, it, it wasn't. You know, like about like here, where perhaps people make choices about whether they're going to be ignorant or not. Once they've been given the sort of handful of knowledge, it really was literally trying to learn the most basic things. So when I spoke to them about England, ninety percent of the kids I spoke to didn't even know what England was. Yeah. Uh, I was I was in rural communities and they had no idea what I was talking about. And they are in bliss by not knowing really. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. But it was interesting. It's interesting trying to have a discussion because most discussions that we have tend to branch outwards and most of their culture was very inward. So the questions they asked me was, who is your grandmother and who are your friends? That's the only thing they wanted to know. They didn't want to know, yeah. you know, even like none of them had even been to the capital of the country <coughs> I was in. They hadn't yeah. even been to the capital city. So yeah. they didn't even want to know about that. They weren't interested. And, they, and it was a school for, you know, like say from six to 16. Yeah. But no one asked me a question about that. And I understood why, because, you know, they didn't even have books. You know, they had, uh, when I was there, sorry, there was a time before computers and they didn't have anything like that. So it, it was literally learning what was around you. Yeah. Which, and funny that, enough, a lot of schools do today now anyway. They, they prefer to try and teach kids that way, like what is your local, what is the trees in your park and things like that. But they mm. didn't have a choice. Um, but it was interesting when you said that about that you tried to set that up because I'm fascinated to see how that project works. And, oh, and yeah. I don't, I don't know if Jermaine mentioned to you, but we're sort of our, our aim is to walk with his son across yeah, Af yeah. Africa, and and uh, so we want to kind of link into that sort of thing anyway. I'll be um, honest, that's the reason I'm here. When I heard Jermaine oh, okay, talk cool. about it, um, he knows I'm extremely busy. He knows I don't tend to take too yeah. many podcasts on anymore. <laughs> but when um, Jermaine spoke about his son, his compulsion, he was just so committed and so... Um, I felt it. I really felt it. He spoke from his heart and I... Um, yeah, it touched a chord. So I'm, I'm very much about children. I'm very much about the new generation, the education of how we treat our children how we speak to them how we should listen to them because often we speak at the children we don't actually give them a chance to answer or tell yeah. us really what they want to say so i was very thankful to hear father's love portrayed the way it was through through you oh thank you so much <laughs> well first of all thank you again for appearing then if that's uh, if that's the yeah. thing you're saying i i've spent a lot of time uh, most of my adult life working with uh, disadvantaged young people. I worked uh, in children's homes, I've worked in homeless shelters for young people, uh, I've worked with homeless young people and I've worked in schools for children who are excluded or who have learning difficulties. So my, my role has always been to try and reach out to those people that are not getting the kind of attention that, and learning that they need and I've always tried to be I mean, I had mothers coming up to me saying they learned nothing in the classroom. How come they're learning with you in the exclusion room? 
and I would just do little quizzes with them so they picked up information, they learned things. And um, we'd had such amazing discussions and we realised the unity of everyone in the room. So just to sort of like say that that's why Jermaine and I had taken on this task, that we share a kind of kindred spirit for that sort of um, development of the human race, really. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and from there, I'd like to kind of open up becoming a parent for yourself, Nina. Um, mm. you, you have more than one child? I have three children. Um, so I actually went from a situation of escaping an honour killing to being with somebody I didn't know. I didn't date him. We didn't even, throughout our 23 years, we didn't go on dates or have dinner out. We didn't really understand that concept. It wasn't something that was normal to me. I didn't know. Um, the life that I'd led didn't make, it didn't actually, I didn't have the education of what a relationship would, should be. You know, my father yeah. was very absent during my upbringing. Um, the house was very volatile. So for me, I didn't really have a good foundation. All I knew was that somebody had offered me a place to stay and I had taken that place up. I met my children's father um, through a job that I was doing. I was working two jobs. I was extremely um, hardworking, <laughs> always have been. And um, he had a girlfriend who was, befriended me. When I had escaped the honour killing, they had offered me a place to go. When I'd got to their house, nobody was there. I'd gone to the police station, ended up in a hostel, hospital, got everything bandaged and sorted and put together a you know, bish-bosh job, really, they did, but they did what they could. And then I ended up not really knowing where I wanted to be, but the hostel was definitely not the place I wanted to be. A lot of people on um, independent on, well, dependent on drugs and alcohol, and I couldn't quite cope with it. I didn't understand that world. I was from a very sheltered life. Um, so I went to their house and they'd split up, but he said, I have two rooms, you can share one of, you can have a room and you can share the flat and you can pay me rent. And I thought, fine, that's great, thank you. Um, I told him that my parents were after me and he didn't seem phased by it. It was very blasé and said, don't worry, I'm never here anywhere, I'm always at work. But we did go to the landlord's party and I'd been introduced to alcohol and I'd never drank in my life. Oh, wow. So mm -hmm. my first daughter, I call the Malibu baby. I haven't watched okay. Malibu again. <laughs> hey. And um, oh, she, changed, she changed my life. Um, when I realised I was pregnant, I automatically went into mother mode and it wasn't sure if it was the right idea because we didn't know each other very well, but I had her. Long story short, I realised that I would give this child everything that I never had because she had broken the cycle being a girl that generational mm. curse as I call it where girls are not celebrated I would celebrate I would give her the confidence the ability the tools to li live a life where she then could go on and empower other people mm -hmm. um, after my daughter four years later I had a son my middle child um, who's um, he's all over my Instagram usually but and then I had I got pregnant again now the domestic violence was getting very um, intense by this stage because he was not really wanting to be with me. I'd started a business, I was very entrepreneurial, I was going 100 miles an hour and looking back, to be fair to him, which I'm very fair because there's two sides to a story, um, I probably didn't give him a, a reason to be in our lives because I was doing everything, I was working, I was looking after yeah. children, I was so he had no real role and he didn't want that role, he was quite happy doing nothing. Um, and he was very aggressive and he pushed me down the stairs when I was um, seven months pregnant and wow. when I got to the hospital, Tyler, he died at birth. Um, shortly after that, I was really blessed to have my youngest son who really pulled me out of a dark space. So I now have three amazing children. Mm. Wow. Um. <clears throat> And so, from the stories of the honor killing, and I know that there are child marriages that, that are linked into that and the trafficking. Yeah. And we're beginning to see now where this work really kind of plays into your life. Um, can, you, can you kind of explain to everyone 
a little yeah. bit more about what it's actually about because I think that so, some people have a lot of um, a snapshot of what's going on on social media and they don't really understand. Mm. Um, so yeah, if, if you could kind of envelope that for us. Most definitely. Um, so my childhood basically entailed being a servant within the house. I thought that was normal. It was quite extreme because by the age of six, I was literally doing all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, but I wasn't allowed to wander the house. I, I had to stay within the four walls of my room. Um, I would hear a call and I would run down and I was very obedient. I always hunched forward trying to be invisible because girls in my culture are that way. We're not supposed to look up. We're not supposed to make eye contact. That's called arrogance and rude. So we don't do it. And, um, life was like that it was normal for me uh, the, the most exciting thing i had in my childhood was a crate that used to have bottles in it and it had been left for me in the kitchen and i turned it upside down realized i could stand on it and i could reach everything and this made my life so much easier i thought i was mummy you know i was like my mummy oh i'm tall now i'm i'm huge i'm a giant so for me everything was mystical and magical i didn't see the wrong in it i just saw it as the normal thing when someone's not allowed to come out of their room when they are eventually allowed to come out of their room they're happy to get out so whatever task you're giving them they will receive it welcoming um they will welcome it by the age of 14 my dad did a trade with one of his friends for my hand in marriage to his son but the trade wasn't for me to actually have a relationship with the son the son had a, a girlfriend and the person that i was actually going into the house to cater for was his friend who was you know my father's age okay um and that was led on because my father and several of his friends raped me at 14 oh, in a wow. horrific attack which from which i nearly died but i survived um but because i'd spoilt myself and it was all my fault my father wouldn't be able to marry me off to just anybody so he created this trade with his friend his friend agreed to it and when i went and got married um, eventually at 17, 16, 17. I was given a separate room and they were called servant quarters in, in a very small house off Ellington, which is another part of Leicester, densely populated with Asians. Mm. In that you house... So, sorry, so, so you were offered to be married at 14 and you were married by 16? Yeah, I was promised. Okay. Um, well, the agreement wow. was made at 14. Um, and as soon as I turned, I think I'd just turned 17 or just yeah, coming yeah. up to 17, I was okay. married. Um, and once you get married, your parents don't talk to you ever again because you're not a, their problem anymore. Somebody's taken the problem away. And that's so, as, a, as a female, as a woman, as a girl. Yeah, as a girl. Okay. So girls tend not to be part of, the, part of the family anymore. You know, they've handed you over and, and you're not mm. no longer um part of that family so it was a very difficult time i was a very young naive person who'd mm. been through a lot of trauma and um insecurities were high because i just wanted to feel safe and that luxury was never there i spent four years <clears throat> struggling with my father-in-law to not rape me all the time and um eventually people at, at work would see that i was turning with bruises and cuts they would do things like they would tie my ankles up with the coat hanger, metal coat hanger to stop me moving because it would dig into my skin. They would go out for the whole day, come back, know that I'd sat there and been unable to move. But they treated me in a very um, derogatory manner. I escaped in the end because of um, sexual violence. And when I turned up at my parents' home, I begged them just to allow me to go into the house and just for them to give me a, a safe place. But they, that's when the honor, attempted honor killing took place. And I was 21 at that time. Um, so so when, you, when you leave a relationship that was arranged by the parents, you bring dishonor to your family. So by having a boyfriend wearing blue jeans, being seen talking to a man in public, doing a job that's not respectful, leaving an arranged marriage. There are a number of reasons, but all these reasons that are valid to them your family they are then they have the authority to kill you they will behead you they will beat you or they will 
bury you under the floorboards. It's a common thing that they say. Mm. One of the reasons I left was because around my area that I was married into, women were having petrol poured over them and being burnt alive. And the police were being told that they were committing suicides. And I knew my turn was coming. I knew it was coming because I hadn't produced a child. My father-in-law had had his fun with me. He didn't want, you know, it was getting a bit boring for him. And I knew, I just knew that that was going to happen to me and I knew I had to escape if I wanted to live. And, and this was happening in Leicester? This was happening in Leicester, in the United Kingdom, yeah. Right. This, this, this is really, really key here because we kind of have this idea of the West, of the UK, you know, being very yeah. uh, developed and, and progressed mm. in society. And, and we don't yeah. know how much really goes on. Um, I'm, I'm aware that even FGM, female genital yeah. mutilation, um, yeah. is, is prevalent in the UK. Very yeah. much so. I mean, I would urge anybody to go and just Google my name and my TED talk because I talk about that is my passion. That is what I'm trying to spread awareness about. But you see, it's happening on your doorstep. It's just not happening to you. Yeah. That's why you don't know about it. Um, and well, I'm just thinking, there's two things that um, I'd really like to ask. Um, the first one is, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you can answer this because obviously it's on the other <coughs> side of the fence, but you, you talked earlier about your religion being a, a very loving religion. And, mm. and I understand that people uh, divorce themselves from the learnings to, to carry out their cultural behaviours. But I still, I still struggle with the concept that if, if you're brought up in a loving culture, uh, religion, that, that setting fire to someone or decapitating them would be like deemed by you as okay, even if it's for the honour of the religion, that it would be okay. Um, I, I struggle to understand the, the sort of switch off where sure. you just stop stop yeah. feeling it, you know. And I just wonder if, you, I mean, I, I'm not expecting you to shed any light because you're not one of the well, people that's doing that. Of course, but you see, it's nothing to do with religion. And I have to keep saying that it's nothing to do with the religion. It's all cultural. It's all society, traditions, mentality of how they feel it, uh, life should be led. It's not, they're not being led by the scriptures. They're being led by ancestral habits, cultural beliefs, cultural mm. restraints. So mm. I do want to be really stern in, in respects to it isn't anything to do with religion because honor killings happen in the Middle East and they practice Islam mainly. It happens in Africa and they practice all different sorts of um, religions. And the most honor killings actually happen in North Africa. And it's got nothing to do with religion. It's just the way they feel um, culturally life should be led. And it's justified to them. They justify it to themselves. It's incredibly masochistic for me, like this really, like an extreme of stoicism. Um, the word for it is murder, an attempted murder. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's that was that's what raises the second question I was going to ask you is because um, we've had um, quite high profile cases in this country of uh, cultural sort of um, sort of like well I'm going to call it what it is murders yeah um, and there's meant to be signposts now I know obviously they don't work all the time and perhaps hardly any of the time but a whole range of people in society are meant to be. Not necessarily getting involved themselves, but alerting people to that. Does that not happen at all? You see, we are taught to serve our parents. And I say this again in my TED talk. We are taught to stay quiet. We are taught it's a taboo. We are taught we should go and kill ourselves as opposed to ever say anything that's happening within the family, outside of the family. Mm -hmm. Days before I was due to travel to Ireland to deliver my TED talk, somebody tried to break my door down. Wow. I've been I've been held at my throat a couple of doors away from my home, returning home by somebody. I've been followed. I have had death threats from my family. I have death threats from people I don't even know. Social media, I get threats all the time. I can imagine. When my TED talk was released, 
I felt a sense of relief. I actually had a friend in Ireland practice my TED talk so she could deliver it if something untoward happened to me. Oh, so, wow. so, so you actually trained her to. Yeah, to, we we both wow. practiced the talk together, and she was she was ready to go and deliver it if I couldn't do it. She would do wow. it if something had happened to me. So I've stopped running, and the problem is. There are thousands of Ninas that are scared. Why did I stay in a relationship for 23 years with a partner that was horrendously abusive towards me, setting my pillow on fire as I was asleep, throwing me down the stairs where I lost my child? Why did I stay? Because I didn't know any different. Mm. And I stayed in that culture because I didn't know any different. When you break away from it, everything is clear. But when you're stuck in a situation, it's very foggy. You can't tell right from wrong. You believe everything you're told and you're scared. Mm. The only emotion that most Asian, African and Middle Eastern girls will ever really know is fear. Mm. They won't know mm. love. They will never know love. They will never know about freedom because they are taught to be guilty. The parents make you feel guilty for thinking about mm. yourself. There's a huge complex there. How yeah. do we so change? Yeah. You're a campaigner around that. So what's your answer to how we change that, um, sort of that legacy across the culture like that? I mean, across all cultures like that. How do we, how do we, how do we go about well, in interrupting that? Definitely. I mean, I'm, I believe I'm a catalyst. I don't know whether I will resolve it in this lifetime, but I know that I've started a snowball that will hopefully be, the baton will be passed on to maybe my daughter because she's very much involved in, this for her own reasons, not mine. She has friends now, her age, 28, Kurdish and Korean, fell in love, had to separate because the parents found out of their secret affair and they weren't allowed to see one another. And this is happening now in the, in the UK around London. In so this is in the 21st century. century. So she has her own reasons to campaign because she believes mm. that everyone deserves the fundamental, basic fundamental human rights, which we do. What I'm trying to do is create awareness, because with awareness, if we all start to talk about rape, for instance, and we normalise talking about it, and it's not so much, oh my God, she was raped, oh dear, poor her. If we start talking about rape, the perpetrators think twice because they know somebody will talk up about it because they're empowered to have that voice. Mm -hmm. And the same goes with human trafficking. Victims, um, This I call them victims because they did go through something that was a horrific thing and we can't shrink that. They have survived and they either are doing well or they need help. But talking about it makes the people stop doing it because they know there are consequences and they will be held accountable. So by spreading awareness, I'm trying to get to everybody to say, look, this is the reality of what's happening on your doorstep, as I said to you earlier, just not to you. What mm. can we do going forward? I want to get to the United Nations and I will because when I put my mind to something, it's all I can think about. I also want to learn how I can re-educate the new, new, new sort of generation by just getting them to understand that I broke that curse, that generational curse. I celebrated my daughter. Celebrate yours. Allow them, you know, celebrate life in general, whether a boy or a girl. And, and the only way you can do that is to take the older generation and almost hold them accountable for their actions so that they then can see that actually what my dad's doing or what my grand granddad did isn't right because mm. even now arranged marriages are happening they're just mm -hmm. called love marriages which means you can go and find somebody and bring them back and we will assess whether they're good or not for you and then okay because you've chosen them off a dating site or wherever through a friend um, that's called a love marriage, but a love marriage isn't that. A love marriage is when you spend time to get to know one another, when you know what each other wants and can empower one another and have that union. So it's not changing, it's changed slightly, but it's not really changing. And mm. as I said, traditions just keep going and going and they are centuries old, so they're not going away anytime soon until someone tries to step in and do something. I find it fascinating, um, considering what you do, what you're campaigning about, um, that people are 
trying to silence you and pushing back like what is that about well i'm i'm not just speaking out against and i'm not you see i'm a proud indian born in this country i am a proud british person you know my name is nina the brit for god's sake on instagram because i love being british it's who i am but i also acknowledge and embrace my culture because i like to be indian i like some of the things that i like and that's who i am so i'm not running away from that nor am i trying to be derogative towards my culture or my race you know i'm just saying that some things are very wrong but i'm also saying it with across the middle eastern culture and i'm saying it against the african culture so i'm a target i've made myself this target because i'm speaking out mm. it's interesting as well because of heritage um and, and the cultural connections and links um where you have them with India and Africa, I have them with Africa and the Caribbean, and they're two very different fields of play. And then when I'm living in the UK as, as someone who is British, it's it's an interesting cocktail. Um, wow, okay. So going forward then, um, what are steps or what would you suggest um, or signpost people to um, in regards to, you know, honor killings, arranged marriages, um, forced arranged marriages, all of that kind of rape. So, Jermaine, if um, I could also sort of add to that, what you, you talked about getting to the United Nations. What would you say to them uh, in terms of how you would like the world to go forward with, with a topic like this? Well, I would really want some sanctions to be put in place um literally every day every minute of every day of every month every year somebody's being killed the statistics are wrong and i can't stop the hands of time as i keep saying but if they can take my hand and we can work together i would like to implement some changes where when an honor killing takes place it's not called an honor killing it's simply called a murder and the same charges are applicable that's an important point actually that's oh, really important wait hold on so there's there's a there's different legalities or, or laws yeah in malta if a if a man rapes a girl even if she's under a certain age if he marries her the rape count doesn't happen in right. in india i guess I, I can use lots of different countries but in india if somebody kills their daughter and, and throws them under a truck nothing happens nothing what? nothing at wow. all in wow. this country in this country nothing happens nothing so if someone if someone was found you, you said before for example <coughs> people would pour petrol over people and set by them if someone was found to have done that would there not be any action taken no no action was taken because i'm a very observant person and having been stuck in my room all my life my ears and eyes were always open yeah yeah um so i pick up on things that a lot of people don't a girl two doors away from my marital home was set on fire in the garden and i heard her screaming which is what freaked me out and i needed to get away the police arrived i wasn't allowed to speak to the police but i was listening the parents the fu the in-laws at the door said to the police that she set fire to herself because wow. she she wasn't happy they didn't check anything and they were speaking amongst themselves. Two white British um, policemen said, we don't need any of this. It's so much paperwork. We don't need the hassle. When I walked into the police station, my arm was broken, my jaw was broken. I was crawling because my hip was broken. Visibly, I looked like something out of a horror movie. They asked me what had happened. And I said, my father and brother tried to kill me in a honor killing. And they said, oh, we'll just get you to hospital. Wow. So this is firsthand. Wow. This is first hand. Wow. Wow. So it's all right putting posters out, part of politics, I'm sure. Yeah, but yeah. I, I have no faith in the police and I'm, I've got nothing. I've, I've got no qualms about saying that. I've got no faith because I've been chased into the police station by my ex-partner. He's banged against my windscreen and they've got CCTV. And they said, he was just trying to give you a letter. So what? even with domestic violence, there is no help really by saying to somebody, 
I cannot charge my parents for what they did. I cannot. I had That's mad. They won't allow me. I have proof on my former partner. I've got recordings. I've got CCTV of what he's done to me. He's actually admitted setting my pillow on fire, but the police said, well, it didn't happen yesterday. It happened such a long time ago. We can't do anything about it. Wow. So if you don't hold somebody accountable, nothing happens. And because I didn't hold my father accountable, he had a child out of wedlock and that child he abducted and took to India and she's never been seen again. And the more I look into that rabbit hole, I've realised where he left her is a home for children that they raise for the point of organs, you know, the human organs. Oh, so they, wow. So they will kill them by a certain age and they will... Um, export their organs to wealthy people in the U United Arab Emirates. Wow, that's, that's insane. So, so you're really uncovering some, some exposing these... Whew. I mean, that was over 30 years later it happened, so the mindset mm. is still, I can do this. Mm. You know, he, he got the, the daughter's mother drunk, and he took the child and he took it to different separate and he's just come out of prison and what was he imprisoned for he's imprisoned for abduction and i said to the police lady please don't let this happen you need to find her or we can't get into the home that he's taken and no one's allowed to visit not even the they parents. can't get in no the police went from here to india and they couldn't get in so wow. the laws don't protect people like me or yeah. children so this is a huge personal thing for me. It's not a vendetta. No, no, it's, no. It's, it's more of a, I couldn't help her. She was my sister. It breaks my heart. I didn't know about her, if I'm being honest, but still it breaks my heart for any child to be treated in such a horrific manner. If yeah. I was scared at the age I was, I know that she would have been completely, you know, beside mm. herself. Of course. Of course she would have. And there's nothing really that you can do, is there? I mean, in terms of no but one. There is looks so much for... we can do. There is so much. Oh, there is. Okay. If so, you like, see, what... if you if you see something that you know, you would have seen things in supermarkets when you. It's like it's like teachers when the children don't return to school. Well, they've gone to yep, live with yep, their yep. they've gone to live with their grandma in Pakistan. Well, have they? Yeah. Report it. They don't report it because it's paperwork. They don't want to. They don't want to get involved. But make a discreet call. There should be somewhere where we can have discreet calls made so that we can investigate it more and people are held accountable when i worked in schools this was meant to be what was happening this was meant to be the standard practice um after the the killings in sorry i've forgotten the names now of the <coughs> children in haringey two two different babies died in haringey and um, that was meant to be standard practice from then on it was meant to be all of the authorities were meant to do joint working to, to, to exactly what you're talking about was meant mm. to be happening and that was at least 10 years ago when i was doing it mark i'm sure you've seen people turn a blind eye well i have but when i raise it i'm told it'll be passed down the line yeah you know it's the problem is that they 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 separate from the teachers and the, and the mentors because they say you're not allowed further in the investigation unfortunately unfortunately it's not their problem and that's how they see it yeah. until it becomes their problem then they want everyone to resolve it. it's like donating blood or something you know until you need that particular blood because your sibling needs it or your child needs it yeah, you don't yeah. even think about giving it mm. Mm. Oh, that's just horrible it's been so how... truly Sorry. truly um an inspire inspirational and enlightening conversation um i'm so appreciative of having the opportunity to actually yeah. spend some time and, and speak with you nina um like you said you're you're very busy <laughs> and it's it has been a little bit of a job trying to pin you down I know, uh, I know. Get I do some time with you, yeah. Which is, you know, it's all part of the fun of, of you know, having a podcast and, and working with guests and so on. Um, so I, I fully appreciate that and, and I see the work that you're doing. Um, so I'm, I'm in awe and I want to honour you for that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. But I was going to ask on top of that, is there anything that Jermaine and I can do to, to be supportive 
around this because obviously we don't want to be sort of um, another just another people that you talk to that don't do anything. Is there oh, anything no. else? I mean, I would just love everyone that's listening or just for people to watch my TED talk and actually just take away from that the information I'm giving, just to have that awareness. Um, it's not an egotistical thing. I didn't record my TED talk because it was on my bucket list. It never was. I asked literally for a Sorry, I, I hate to be ignorant, but what is a TED talk? <laughs> it's a... Um... Have you never seen TED talk? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Sorry. Oh, okay. It's um, quite a prestigious platform upon which you can share an educational point oh, of right, view. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So basically, people can catch you on that and, and listen yeah. to you. Yeah. Okay. So will you give us the link to that so that people can, if they're listening to this, thing? Yeah, most definitely. I can do that. Thank that, you. Thank you. But thank you so much. And also, sorry, with the when we do our, our sort of journey through Africa, is there any way that we can help with your program that you're doing there? I mean, we'll be obviously walking through a number of countries and cycling through I a number of countries. I can definitely put you in touch with my um, African representative. You would be more than happy, I'm sure, to see some um, faces. But a lot of our work is done remotely. We've just won an award, actually, but we just don't talk about oh, it. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, Go on, let, let's talk about that before we go. Yeah, let's on. talk Come about on. that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, what was the award for? Um, well, it was an award for, it was a scholarship, the Africa Scholarship Cohort um, Award. And I think it was just a, um, we, we are an outreach program, and the whole purpose of it, our outreach program, is to transform lives, not just in Africa, but Africans all over the world, young Africans, to try to give them education. And we were just picked up that we were recognised for our work. Um, as I said, it's called DE Africa, DE Africa. Um, and yeah, we were just commended for that hard work to, to be providing that service. So we're super proud. Oh, well done. Congratulations. What, what does the, um, you know, the outreach, how does that actually work then in terms of... A lot of it is, when yeah, a lot of it is done. We um, have somebody in America that helps donate laptops and... Oh, wow, cool. We, we provide the laptops um, to the children or we try to take it to a village where the children can gather and an internet signal, which you know you've been, so you know it's not always easiest to think. <laughs> <laughs> But by that having those resources, then they can access not just educational maths, um, they can do a course in, I don't know, being a technician or something, just a very basic course that gives them an understanding which helps them then to enhance their ability to go and get a job um, and to be regarded as somebody of validation that they can do wow. something. Mm. So we try and just help the education. Then there's a lot of children that want to learn. There's a lot of children that can't get to a school, so... I never met children that didn't want to learn Africa. I only met yeah. children that didn't want to work, learn it here. You see, for I them, never... for them, the simple pleasures mean a lot. And I, yeah. love, I love that. And I'm very much similar. I'm very similar in that mindset. I don't need a lot to be happy. I'm happy with the simplest of things. Wow. I mean, that could be a really good um, tag for just... For a lot of people, for a lot of things in life, but... Be very useful to have that just when we're thinking about most things just to be content with just the, the the least that you need rather than trying to get everything which you don't need um, been, thank you so much it's been so i mean it feels like five minutes but i guess we've been talking for a while i know i know um nina just just before we do go do you have any closing thoughts um I would just like to reach out to anybody that's listening just to say that remember that you do have a choice whatever your situation is you should be celebrating every little win um you don't have to think about what's going to happen 10 days 10 years down the line just think about what's happening right now um yeah. i do believe that life is a game and it's the cheat codes are everywhere you know believe in yourself is one um a lot of the things that are in these scriptures of being a good person are definitely cheat codes. I was forced to never lie. I was forced to be running in line with those scriptures. And I believe that I became the person I am because I played the game accordingly. Um, give yourself a little more love than you do. You would easily run out and get a prescription for somebody else and put yourself last, put yourself first. 
if you look after yeah. yourself, then you can look after everybody else. And just sending lots of love and appreciation to everybody that's listening. Thank you so much, Nina. No worries. Thank you so much for having Thank me. Thank you so much. I think it's been a real it's pleasure. Been, it's been a little while coming, but it's definitely been worth it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Much appreciate you both. Thank you. And we appreciate yeah. you. Thank you so much for all that you do. And right here on the Curious Anarchy podcast, we've been spending time with Nina Oak, with myself, Jermaine, and my wonderful co-host, Mark. That is all we have time for. Thank you all so very much for tuning in. Much appreciated. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>